Shut up and sit down. I think anybody that's used to be sort of being outdoors, majority of their life training and exercising, then it has proven to be a little bit difficult. But the fact we can go out and exercise and the weather's not been too bad, then I think at the moment it's bearing up well. If it goes on for another six to eight weeks, um, then I don't know how we're all going to cope. But the company is, uh, we sort of changed things a little bit. We were doing assessments as in face-to-face with different potential athletes, student athletes. Now we're trying to do it a little bit more online and it takes away the sort of contact issue and obviously the social distancing. So that, that's proven to be quite successful so far. And we can do that with anybody throughout the world. It doesn't have to be on your doorstep. So it's proven to be a little bit more successful than we thought. Uh, well, you're talking there about people that are used to exercising outside. I haven't exercised well, I don't think, for about 25 years, so it's not affecting me that much. <laughs> You'll be enjoying uh, enjoying the lockdown then? Uh, well, until my five-year-old daughter is at me every five minutes, it's, it's not bad. Um, I thought we would just go back and start a wee bit about your early life. Um, what was life like for a young Dave McPherson growing up? Um, well, I was born in Brop, not sort of born, born in Paisley, but brought up in Pollock. Um, which is literally 10 minutes from Ibrox. So my sort of youthful days were playing um, for a team called Pollock United. Um, and there's two sort of famous players that played alongside me at the time. One was Billy Davis, who was at Rangers as a youngster. And my centre-back um, companion was uh, none other than Tommy Sheridan. <laughs> So um, we had we had a really good side growing up uh, and were quite successful throughout the ranks of um, youth football uh, throughout the west coast of Scotland. Um, so it was great, really enjoyed it. Um, I, te- I tended to concentrate more on my, my football than my academic side. Um, it's probably one of the reasons I get involved in a sort of scholarship recruitment because I, I realised post-career how important it is to have a sort of education as well as a a sporting background. So growing up that close to Ibrox and obviously growing up a Rangers man, did you have a season ticket when you were younger or anything like that? No, no, my, my dad couldn't afford a season ticket. I, I was fortunate enough that I still get lifted over the, the turnstiles. <laughs> um, so they, they, were, they were great days watching um, players who I admired um, throughout my youth. John Gregg, Colin Jackson, Tom Forsyth, Derek Johnson, Tom McLean, Sandy Jarden, Alec Muller. You know, they were all big heroes to me. Um, and I still remember the time they won the, the what was the Cup Winners' Cup in 72 uh, as, a, as a great memory. But throughout my youth, you know, Rangers were the team that I followed. I'm, a, I'm just a wee bit too young to remember the Cup Winners' Cup in 72, I think. <laughs> um, see, when you're saying you, you had to play for Paul, did you, I also believe, did you play for Gart Cross United as well? Yeah, when I joined Rangers, um, I was still that sort of age in between... Um, Become a reserve player, and obviously the next steps of first team. So they sort of farm me out for a few months, or even a full season. So I get farmed out to Gart Kosh, um for that season that I joined Rangers in 1980. Um, and I played alongside really good players there as well, Pat Nevin, Tommy McQueen. Oh. You know some really good players there as well. So I was always sort of in and about really good young youth players, and we had a great time. And everybody back in the day just wanted to turn professional for the club that they supported. Whereas now it's a little bit different. You can move anywhere all over the world. Anybody that's willing to pay money for you. Well, it's, that's strange. I don't think you would get Rangers um, loaning players out to Gart Cross United anymore. That's how things have changed. Yeah, exactly. But back in the day, you had um, majority of players were from in and around Scotland. Mm-hmm. Whereas now you're getting youth players from all over the world. Rangers can take their pick from like their a connection in India, 
they could get players from Australia, uh, New Zealand, anywhere in the world. So it's changed times. So like you say, you started the Rangers in 1980. I believe you were only 16. Um, yeah. Who was it? Who was it that scouted you and brought you to the club? I can't remember off the top of my head who scouted me. It was lots of scouts used to come to the, the, the matches at Port United. And the fact that Billy Davis had already signed a schoolboy form, then they were coming along to watch him. Uh, and they must have spotted me. And they asked me to come along when I was 14 to training on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night at Ibrox. Um, and that was the sort of first time I met John Gregg. He walked mm -hmm. in. So, uh, in the gymnasium at the time, um, inside Ibrox. And that was a, a great occasion for me as a, a Rangers fan to, to meet one of your heroes when you're 14. How, uh, that youth team you're talking about, like Billy Davis and that, was there many that went, like yourself, from the youth to the first team? Uh, yeah, uh, Dougie Robertson played in the first team, Gordon DL, uh, to name a few. And uh, I remember like, Gordon Ramsay was there at the time as well, but I don't think he actually made it. He, he, he chose another path and uh, done not too bad for himself. I think he pretends that he played for the first team. Um, <laughs> so uh, can I, after uh, you get brought into the first team at actually quite a young age, um, yeah. I think was it 1982 you were brought into the first team? Yeah. How daunting was that then? Because you would have been only, what, 18 then coming into a dressing room? I thought it was 17. Um, but I didn't see it being daunting. I think I trained really hard between that 16, joining Rangers, your full-time training morning and afternoon. I wanted to make a go at it, so I worked you know, as hard as I possibly could to, to improve my game and improve my fitness. Um, it's not like now that there's a lot more sports science involved uh, and rest is every bit as important as how hard you train. Back in the day, it was how fast can you run? How hard can you run until you fall down? Um, so I, I worked as hard as I possibly could. So I was quite lucky to make that breakthrough. And Rangers began through a sort of transitional team um, where a lot of the older players, like Alec McDonald, Alec Miller, Tom Forsyth, were coming towards the end of their career. I benefited from that because these were the guys I was playing reserve team football with. So, I mean, to play alongside these experienced players, it brought you on leaps and bounds. And that was why I had such a, a rapid progress. And you, you don't see that as much nowadays. Well, actually, just on that, then, you're talking about reserve team football, where do you stand on the reserve team to, like, the under-21 stuff? So, obviously, nowadays, it's just under-21 leagues, I think, and you can have one or two in the first team. Yeah, uh, I've, I've never been a big fan of it, to be honest. Um, I think youth football, I'm all for it. Um, there was nothing wrong with the way I get brought up and get brought into the first team. It's quite a tough route. Um, Certainly, the coaching's better nowadays. There's a lot more coaches involved, but there's a lot more that can be done. Um, I think it was invaluable for me to play alongside experienced players, not just one or two, but majority of the team, maybe eight or nine, were experienced. But not the fact you're playing alongside experienced players, you're also playing against experienced players. Mm -hmm. And that is one aspect that I don't think you see at youth level. You're playing against players of your own age. and. I don't think players learn from their mistakes the way I did when I played or played against players. If you make a mistake in a reserve team when you're playing for Rangers when you're 17, 16, you know, the experienced players certainly uh, let you know about it. But they would talk to you after the match and then you would pick up different tips and different ways of how you would handle it the next time. Well, actually, just when I was recently, I was researching for the interview, um, I didn't realise just how many goals you scored. Um, so, were you like a, a striker trapped in a defender's body? It's funny because when I when I played in the youth football, I didn't really score any goals <laughs> at all. It wasn't until I turned pro I thought the ball just seemed to keep landing at my feet. <laughs> uh, I've got a really good goal scoring record for a setter bag. It's roughly one in one goal in every ten games, which is uh, probably a lot better than some of the strikers going about these days. I, I, I just thought I've got. I think with my height. Um, corner kick set pieces um you know i was more of a threat but again it's it goes back to how hard you work in training mm -hmm. because you're a center back it doesn't mean you can't work at other aspects of your game as in finishing so i used to watch Derek johnson and um, come back in the afternoon and he used to get crosses thrown in from the right hand side and the left hand side and he was an unbelievable finisher you know it was the head touch shot left foot right foot 
So I used to watch them and I thought, I want to try that as well. So all of a sudden, the more you work at something, the better you become at it. So I ended up becoming not a bad finisher as well. And I think that proves with my goal scoring record as well. Because I, th- I think you were the first Rangers player to score four goals in Europe. I was. It's probably in the one, in, in the one game, obviously. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's probably some sort of world record for a centre back. Um, I was just talking about that last night against the Valletta, and it was my European debut um, over in Malta. And yeah, I managed it one header, um, two with the left foot, and one with the right foot. So it's not not bad for a centre back. And it, the, the one, there's another unique thing about that match was um, there was a match that took part straight after it and it was Dundee United against Bohemians. So there was like two European matches back to back with two Scottish teams uh, in a foreign country, which I don't think we'd ever get again. No, you certainly wouldn't get that with the social distancing. Well, no, no, but they're talking about bringing it back in Germany, which I find astounding. Um, yeah. But, just so on, on your kind of first spell at Rangers, there's a lot of people in their career they would win one league title and two cups, and that's all they would ever win in their career. Uh, yeah. But obviously, uh, for Rangers in the space of five years, that's kind of that's that's mediocre if you like. Um, for you personally, how do you look back at your um, your your first spell at Rangers? Well, I think playing for Rangers, I loved every minute of it. Um, the good times and the bad. I mean, you're not going to go through your career. Every game is going to be a great game. Every game is going to be a successful game. So you have, you learn from the bad times probably more than what you do from the good times. But as I said, when I get brought into the team, it was a, there was a, a transition going on within Rangers. There was a lot of successful players, players who had won two trebles, Bobby Russell, you know, great players, fantastic players. Um, we're all coming towards the end of their careers. So there was a chance for me to break into the team and establish myself. But because there was other players coming and going, I think that's where the inconsistency was. There was a big changeover. Uh, John Gregg left and then Jock Wallace come in. So there was a, a lot of team rebuilding going on. And that, to do that with a successful team takes a certain amount of time. It doesn't happen overnight, even at a club like Rangers. No, that's true. That's true. And then obviously, as soon as comes in and, and you're, you're sold to hearts. Now, was there any part of you that felt hard done by that? that that Rangers let you go, do you feel you should have stayed? Uh, at, at the time, yeah, obviously. I mean, it's your team you supported as a as a kid. Um, we won the league that year. I played the majority of games, scored a lot of important goals. It was the last thing I thought was going to happen. And I basically got a telephone call out of the blue to say, it was Graham phoned and said, Hearts have put an offer in for you. Um, I've accepted that. I think you should go. That was basically it, the telephone call. So it was just after coming back my summer holidays, I was looking forward to starting back pre-season uh, Rangers again. So it was a bit of a shock, but I had to make a decision pretty quickly to say, do I want to stay at a club that the manager doesn't want me and I'm not going to play? I mean, I want to be at a club that I want to play and the manager wants me. So fortunately enough, I went through and spoke to Hearts and it's two Rangers legends, Alan McDonald and Sandy Jardin. So, you know, there was a, it was an easy decision to make. I know that what they wanted to do at Hearts and they did sort of Rangers blood in them, how they wanted to play, train. Um, and I, rather than look upon it as a step backwards, I looked upon it as a step to the side to rebuild and, and, and progress. You hear quite a lot about playing for Rangers. There's a lot of pressure on the players. You know, every game you've got to win, every tackle you've got to win. Um, was it was it the same then you're saying with Sandy Jarvin when you went to Hearts did you have the same feeling or was there not quite the same pressure on you? Uh, the same pressure obviously from the management obviously Alec and Sandy they were fit as anything even even you know when they stopped playing they're probably two of the fittest players that I've ever played with um, so that you had that same pressure from them as a manager and that's what I wanted regarding playing for Hearts as a team they're obviously they hadn't been as, as successful as Rangers had been or were. So you've not really got that expectation from the fans. Whereas it, I play at Ibrox, make a bad pass, mm-hmm. everybody's down on you. Make a great pass, that's expected. Whereas at Hearts, it was slightly different. So you could relax a little bit more. And, you know, in my first season there, um, I don't know, I, I, th- I think I started off really slowly because it was a different environment for me. But 
I soon picked up the speed and uh, really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed my time there. Obviously, during your time at Hearts as well, you played in the nineteen ninety World Cup for Scotland. Um, yeah. What's it like just playing in a World Cup? The build-ups, the, the group games—is it a totally different feeling playing for your your country to what it is playing for a club? Uh, absolutely. I, I kind of so look. I look upon it like it's a, a European match. I think playing in the Premier League, you're playing each other four times a season, if not more. Began cup ties, it becomes a little bit sterile, a bit boring. Every player knows each other. So when you get that break for a European match, then it's something every player looks forward to. And even the fans, I know the fans look forward to a European match to get away from the, you know, the boringness of the, the, the Premier League. So the international matches were great. You know, you're playing with players who are with are at other clubs. You're picking up different ideas from them, how they play. And again, you're playing against top international um, quality players uh, quite a lot of the time so you, you don't want to test yourself against them so playing in a World Cup and the build up to a World Cup was, was phenomenal you know that's one of, one of the highlights of my career I've only got vague vague memories of the 1998 World Cup and it's weird to think that's the last World Cup we've been at yeah. um, now you, you've got 27 caps for Scotland now I would, for me personally if I got one cap for Scotland I would be delighted um, but do you feel you should have maybe got yeah, you got more caps, or do you feel that 27 is just about right? No, I, th I think I should, I should have got more. I think at the time um, that I was coming towards the end of my international career, I picked up a couple of niggling injuries. I played a lot of football. You know, I started quite young. Uh, and from the 1989, 90, 91, 92, the European Championships, I basically played five seasons without a break. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, you, I think nowadays with sports science, as I spoke about earlier, there's a lot more into recovery. Even if you're picking up niggling injuries, you're out for two or three weeks. Back in the day, I'm, early on in my Rangers career, I remember playing my dislocated shoulder. I remember phoning up Jock Wallace. Uh, I had to get my mum to phone up Jock Wallace when I was I had the flu. I had tonsillitis. And uh, Jock said, I'm sending a taxi for him, get him in. <laughs> So I sent a taxi to my house in Pollock. I had to go to Ibrooks and he gave me a, a whiskey before the start of the match. I drank this whiskey, went out and played. Then he sent me a taxi back home. So, you know, you, I don't think you would get away with that um, nowadays. Um, but yeah, I'd played a lot of football. So I was picking up niggling injuries and I think that affected me obviously playing uh, international matches as well because I had to rest mm -hmm. as much as possible. Your, your body's telling you to slow down a little bit. I think the last person to drink a whiskey at Ibrooks during the game was Gaza. I don't think it's ever been done so. <laughs> um, so you then obviously you returned to Rangers in '92 under Walter Smith. Um, was that a kind of easy decision? Did you feel like you had made a wee bit unfinished business at Rangers? Yeah, I mean, going back to Rangers was never going to be a difficult decision to make. Um, in that time, it was pre-Bosman, mm -hmm. so the. Uh, yeah, I know that Tottenham put an offer in, Southampton put an offer in, uh, Dortmund and Seville wanted to sign me as well, but they wanted me to come towards the end of my contract and obviously be a free player and then just walk and sign for a club, whereas Rangers put an offer in at 1.4 million, I think it was, so Hearts accepted that and that made the decision for me as well, that yeah, I was happy to go back. I think it was, was it 1.2, 1.3 plus Alan McLaren, I think, as well. Um, yeah, that was coming back the other way. Oh, was that going back the other way? I see I'm, I'm getting too ahead of myself. <laughs> um, but uh, just quickly, because I'll probably forget to ask you, because one of my colleagues asked me to um, get your opinion on Alan McLaren and just how good do you think he could have became if it wasn't maybe the engines and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I played with Alan at Hearts um, in Scotland. Um, yeah, he was a great player. You know, potentially, you know, one of the best defenders in Scotland. So it's very unfortunate, you know, the injuries he had. I think he had it uh, when he was younger as well. So it was always going to come, come back up and uh, affect him. So yeah, I, I feel sorry for him because he should have played a lot longer at Rangers and for Scotland. See, I've asked it now, so I won't forget. <laughs> um, so that, obviously, that's not not a bad time to return to Rangers the 92-93 season. And I think a lot of Rangers supporters of a certain vintage would say. That's quite possibly one of the best teams and one of the best seasons we had. 
Yeah, I mean, it was an unbelievable season. Um, starting off with the obviously Champions League qualifiers, and it, it was a great team spirit within the dressing room. Um, every player got on well with each other. You know, even in our sort of nights out, everybody got on well. Um, if we if we went a goal behind, every player had the belief we were going to come back and win the match. There was that belief that we could th- we could go through the season unbeaten. Uh, if that was the case, um, it was like, I think one of the best, but definitely one of the best seasons in my career. Was there a kind of feeling amongst the players, and you've probably been asked this a thousand times, um, at the end of that European campaign, was there any kind of <clears throat> feeling that Marseille had done what they'd done? Was there any, what's uh, the best way to put it without? Cheated. Aye, there you go, I can't think, there you go. <laughs> I, I think at the time we were out, um, I think we drew against um, nothing each at Ibrox, so we're basically that knocked us out. We didn't realise that the sort of what Marseille were up to at the time, but subsequently when we found out what, what had been going on, then I think a lot of the players felt a little bit hard done by because certainly we were good enough to, to win. Um, the Champions League that year, I feel. But the team we had, um, if we managed to stay injury-free, uh, we, we certainly had we given a good shot to, to actually win the Champions League that year, that year as well as, well as the treble. Aye, because if you look at, obviously, the, the qualifying campaign, we beat Leeds, we put a good account of ourselves against Marseille. Um, and but do, do you think among, among the players, they would have felt confident going to play that, that Milan team? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I mean, not saying we would have beaten them. <laughs> certainly, um, I think the team spirit we had, the quality players we had throughout the team, everybody helped each other. I had a goalkeeper, Andy Gorham, who, you know, you could rely on if any of the defenders made a mistake to pull you out of trouble. Defensively, we're great. Midfield, very creative. Well, I could change that um, about a little bit between defensive players and attacking midfield players. Up front with McCoyst and Haitley, um, you know, fantastic partnership. Um, and the goals they scored down at Leeds United uh, proved that. Yeah, I definitely feel that we could have went on to win it. Then obviously the following season, we get a double. Um, you play something like 37 games and like 57 games, so you're still playing a lot of games. Yeah. Um, but um, was there a feeling in that season that Rangers were starting to bring in quite, spend a lot of money? and bringing quite a lot of international players. Sorry, I missed that question there. Oh, sorry. I was just saying, um, in the 93-94 season, um, you played the majority of the games again. I think you were actually in the top 10 players for games. But was there a feeling in that season that Rangers were starting to spend quite a lot of money and bringing in a lot of international players and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously, even now, I think the Champions League is where Rangers want to be. Again, you can play in the Premier League four times a season. It's running its course for me and it has done probably 10, 15 years ago. It needs to be changed. So everybody looks forward to the European nights and, and I know the supporters do. They're big, big occasions and that's where players, if you're an international player coming to, to Rangers, that's where you want to play. No disrespect to the, the lower teams in the league, but these players don't want to play there. They want to play in the big matches. And again, Rangers deserve to be in the big leagues and the big competitions played against the best opposition, and that's what Rangers fans deserve. I think a lot of fans as well would say that, apart from 92, from kind of 93 onwards, Rangers didn't really do that that, that well in Europe. Uh, Underwater, I think that was a, a big thing for Rangers fans as well, especially that 93 season against Levski Sofia. Yeah, I, I'm surprised at that because they certainly had enough quality in, in the players they were bringing in. Um, but. If you look back, I think other European teams were strengthening as well. So they were getting better. And I think what, again, I'll go back to what was affecting Rangers more and more, was playing in the Premier League four times a season against these teams. Good good teams in Scotland, but I think maybe are going from one level to a really high level, it's, it's, it gets more difficult to adjust after time. Just quickly on that then, um, on, on the leagues, did you feel when you were playing that playing teams four times a season was just too much? Was... I never enjoyed that. I don't think there's any player that enjoys it. 
mean, I think in the 92 and 93 season, I'm sure we played Aberdeen seven times. You know, and it just, and that's why you get these little niggles go, go they go on throughout the season. Um, and it's, it takes away from the football aspect. The, the games become boring. You know, you cancel each other out, especially when you get to the turn of the year, um, January, February, but the pitches aren't that great. You get a lack of quality of football. And I, I feel like the Scottish fans are getting cheated because you're paying good money and you want to see good quality players deliver good quality football. And I think when you're playing each other four times a season throughout the winter, I don't think you get that. I think that was just purely brought in for four old forum games. And I think that Scottish football still hasn't recovered because we had this discussion on the podcast about uh, league reconstruction because there's chat about it just now. Should we go here 14, 14, um, or maybe a 16? But I, I don't think Scottish football will change it to anything other than having four old forum games. And I think that seriously hurts the Scottish game. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that entirely. I mean, the league needs restructured. I'm not going to say I've got an answer, the perfect answer for it. I don't think anybody does. But, you know, I would even look at changing when we play, you know, make it more summer football rather than through the winter. I think when you play in better weather, the players enjoy it more, the pitches are better, lighter nights, the fans enjoy it more, and you get a better quality of football. And if you're paying money week in, week out, or season ticket money over the year, you want to see quality football. I don't want to go to a match in January, February, December, when it's blowing a gale, it's dark, it's wet, it's windy. Nobody likes that. Nobody <laughs> likes that. I, I know it's character build, building back in the day, but <laughs> there's only so much of that you can do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any Rangers fan wants to watch Rangers in January after the last two seasons. Yeah, true. Uh, um, so I, I, overall then, if you, how do you look at your time at Rangers? Because obviously, you got inducted into the Rangers Hall of Fame and there's not many people that can actually say that. So that must have been a, a, a big deal for you as well. Uh, absolutely. For a boy growing up in Pollock, um, you know, a Rangers fan, um, my brothers, my dad was a Rangers supporters, all my, a lot of my friends were Rangers supporters. Um, it's a tremendous honour. Uh, one I, I don't take lightly. It's a, you know, a fantastic achievement for me, for me and my family. Um, and I just, I loved every, every minute I was at Ibrox. You know, if I could have sp spent the whole of my career there, then great. But maybe I wouldn't have been the same type of player. I think when you move to different teams, you, you become a slightly different player, a better player as well, by playing different styles. Even when I moved to Australia, I picked up different things. You, you never stop learning football, but my time at Rangers was, was unbelievable. You know, I just, I loved every minute of it. I asked um, David Robertson the same question, but obviously when, when you're there um, and, and you're in amongst uh, the 50,000 supporters and you're playing and maybe you're not having a good game or you're having a good game, is it enjoyable to play at Ibrox or is it is the pressure just make it unenjoyable if you, if you get what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, I think when you walk out on the pitch at Ibrox, you have to blank that out. You know, and that, that's the hardest part when you're a younger player is developing that. And that was, was the benefit of me playing, as I said earlier, in the reserve team football with experienced players. You learned off them, you picked up you know, what they were doing. If you make a bad pass, you just need to lift your head and get on with it. You know, you make a mistake, you lose a goal. That's, you're at Rangers, you're going to get stuck for it. You know, you have to be a man about it. You can't just bury your head in the sand. You get on with it and you make the next pass better. That's how you're brought up as a Rangers player. You know, if you're going to silk about it and let the fans get to you, then you're not a Rangers style of play. So back, see, if I can compare maybe your first spell and your second spell at Rangers, what was it like um, being out about in public and stuff? Obviously in the early 80s, when you were playing for Rangers, could you just walk about the town and, and do what you needed to do compared to maybe in the 90s? And it was a bit more, because there was a bit more money in football then. Yeah, I, I think my early days, I didn't go out. So oh. I was more like total pro. And I uh, just wanted to train and, and play. I remember my first first team game uh, at Ibrox. It was a midweek match. And I got the bus back home to Pollock. And I was sitting up the back of the bus upstairs. Uh, and I had my Rangers blazer on. Um, and there was two Rangers fans got on. And they sat in front of me and were talking. And one of them says, I think that big McPherson looks not a bad player. Another one says, 
No, nah, I don't think he's going to do any good. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting around and I'm like, oh, this is what you're going to have to get used to. You know, opinions uh, in football vary greatly. Um, but going about uh, the second spell, again, I very rarely went out unless you were in a sort of group with other Rangers players and it was an organised one. In the rare occasions you did go out, then you had to get used to people coming up and interrupting your dinner and saying, can you have an autograph or a photograph? That's part and parcel of being a football player in Glasgow. And if you don't like it, then you shouldn't be at Rangers. Do you ever get used to that, though? I mean, I, I, I've got, I think I've got 500 Twitter followers, right? So I'm getting there on the celebrity scale. But do you ever get used to just people, random people coming up and asking you for an autograph or a selfie? Or? Uh, I don't think, yeah, I, I never really ever get used to it. I think you just become accustomed to it when you're playing at that level. Um, I'm just quite a quiet guy. I like just to keep myself to myself. But when you're six foot five, my height, and you're walking about Glasgow, I think you're easily identifiable. <laughs> I couldn't really hide in a corner. <laughs> See, I'm lucky. I'm five foot seven, so it's... Oh, well. <laughs> I can stay in the shadows. Um, so you then, obviously, you moved back to your, your, your second spell at Hearts, um, and you actually uh, helped Hearts win their first trophy in 36 years. So how, yeah. did you enjoy, how did you enjoy your kind of setting spell back at Hearts? And did you feel your kind of career was winding down by then? Yeah, I did. I wanted to go back. Uh, well, I didn't want to go back, but I went back um, because Hearts, there was a place I, I knew. I knew the supporters. Got on really well with the supporters. Um, again, the team, I felt as if I had some unfinished business there. Mm -hmm. uh, I was unlucky in my first spell. There's a nearly men of Scottish football. Um, we should have won something, but we didn't. So going back the second time, I wanted to finish off uh, in a high there and hopefully win something, be it the League Cup, League or Scottish Cup. And it just happened to be against Rangers. <laughs> it did, but the good thing was it was at Celtic Park. <laughs> For me, that makes it worse. Um, so obviously, and again, you get inducted into the Hearts Hall of Fame as well. So I don't know many players in Scotland that have inducted into two separate teams Hall of Fame. No, I, I mean, I've got a very unique career. I think I've played a lot of football throughout my career. I've been 10 years at Hearts and 10 years at Rangers, two different spells at each club. It's it's unique, and you'll, you'll never get that nowadays. Players are signing one-year, two-year contracts. There was a bit more loyalty back in the day that if you were at a club, you wanted to stay there. I can understand it now because football is a short career, and players need to make as much money as possible. So that's why there's a lot more movement. But... Um, it's a it's a fantastic, you know, career to look back on, you know, and in, in the Hall of Fame for both clubs, is something I need to pinch myself about now and again, when I, whenever I try and think about it. Does that just mean that you're the man to come and see for a ticket for both teams then? <laughs> yeah, just give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, then you finish at Hearts and you went over to Australia and you came back over to Morton. Was um, you had a short spell as, as kind of player manager at Morton. Yeah. Coming towards the end of your career, did you have anything set up? Did you know what you wanted to do when you finished uh, finished playing football? Um, I, I did. I mean, I obviously wanted to get into coaching. Um, and the, the the environment and I'm in, I'm in now the sort of the college recruitment was something I was looking back in the day uh, that, that I wanted to do. I'd known quite a few players that had done it. Davey Weir obviously did it um, and very successfully. And went over to get his degree and come back and turn pro. So I've got my two of my brothers are quite academic and quite bright. Um, whereas I was fortunate enough to turn pro at 16. But I wish I went down the academic route as well. But it wasn't an option for an option for me back in the day. But if it was an option, it was certainly one that I would have looked at. Because I think nowadays. If you think about the amount of players that are getting released through a, from academies at a young age, they have nothing to really support them. And I look at coming towards the end of my career, you know, it, it hits you overnight. Um, I went to Australia. I wanted to play another two seasons in Australia, but the club I played for went sort of bust. It was more like a franchise um, situation in Australia, about like America. So if somebody pulls out, um, whoever funds it pulls out, then the club go to the wall. So I basically had to come back to Scotland at the last minute. And then the Morton thing came up. Uh, and again, that didn't work out. So, you know, it hits a lot of players 
really quickly and you, you don't really, there's nothing that can prepare you for it. Have you got any aspirations of being a manager in the future or are you quite settled at, at the GSR? Do you see yourself doing that now long term? No, I, I wouldn't. I don't see myself being in, in management. Coaching aspect, I still do that through the assessments we do, we do throughout the world. So I love that. I mean, that, that was part of the game. I think you're, you're giving something back to football by doing that. When you're talking to young boys and girls about, you know, their technique, uh, fitness, again, education as well, what it takes to become a pro player, um, you know, trying to balance that route between being a pro and being get, getting your degree. You know, it's advice I love giving to young boys and girls. Um, so it's, it's, that's an enjoyable part. But the management side, um, I'd probably stay clear of. Well, we can on. We can come on just quickly because um, I want to talk about GSR because I was, like I said, I was um, uh, researching this and I got it completely wrong. So <laughs> if I could just quickly ask you a wee bit about the SPFL and um, everything that's happening now. Obviously, from, from the outside looking in, how do you how do you um, see what's going on in Scotland right now? And how because obviously you work with people in Australia and America. And how does that look? Do you think for the outside world? I don't think it looks very good uh, to the rest of the world how Scottish football has behaved. Um, I'm not going to say I've got the right answer, but I think this has been happening for years. Um, I don't know, at the moment, I don't know who's right and who's wrong, but they're certainly making decisions um, based on, you know, self-interest. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think that's right. They, they, everybody needs to look for the, the greater benefit of the game. And, and where football goes from here in Scotland, if it ever comes back. I think a lot of clubs could go to the wall if this COVID-19 thing isn't, isn't sorted out sooner rather than later. So I, I think there has to be a lot a lot more changes in football and try and get more football-minded people on board to try and take the game forward to where it was before when Scottish teams were successful in Europe, Scotland as a nation was qualifying for big competitions. We're going, it's a, a downward spiral um, that we're going on and we have been going on for years and that has to stop uh, and again I think with the self-interest with a lot of the clubs um, they should take a good look at themselves and think they're great or good at the game. I think there's been, especially in my lifetime, there's been a great divide between a lot of the clubs in Scotland and I think one of the biggest problems is that the SPFL as a members organisation is run by the clubs so I don't see where um, clubs are going to come together and help each other when there's been this, I don't want to say hatred because it's very strong, but there's been a, a clear divide between a, a, a number of clubs. So how can we possibly come together and fix that? I think that's the biggest well, that, problem. Well, I think that's got to change. They have to get the right people uh, at the right level, at board level, um, to make the right decisions for the greater good of the game. I'm not saying that everybody's wrong, everybody's bad, it's mm -hmm. on SPL, but it, I just don't think it works. And I don't think it has worked for years. And even pre-SPFL, I didn't think it worked. Mm -hmm. I think we were lucky back in the day that when we did qualify these big competitions, other nations were behind us. Now a lot of these nations have caught up and probably overtaken us. You know, and that's why I'd, be, I'd been looking at, but I'd, I'd be going further back to see where we were then why we haven't progressed as a nation regarding youth football, international football, even the European situation, and where we can go from here, trying to take a new, a new leaf out of the book. Well, it's, I think the, the Rangers went down the leagues in 2012. I don't think that helped for your advertisements and stuff, because we never had any advertisement for the leagues for two or three years. And, but I, I, one of the biggest problems is people are saying, well, this, this SPFL board isn't a... Courageous enough to go out and grab a lad Brooks or, or a whoever and, and try and get the advertisement revenue that we need because you only have to look down south. And we can't compare ourselves to England because obviously England are much bigger. But I think there's a lot of Rangers fans that just feel that the SPFL only benefits certain people and that they don't because that's ever going to change. Yeah. For me, I would have um, looked at a British league. I know mm. we did do. I think that would have been to the benefit of Scottish football. If they get involved, even if it's down at a lower level, say Division One to start off at, and certainly your Rangers and Celtic teams would have progressed up the leagues to the, eventually the Premier League, because um, it, it would have given them more money to spend. And in, in turn, that would enhance our Scottish game. Then you would have teams maybe 
it depends who stays in Scotland, winning the Premier League in Scotland and qualifying for Europe, European competition. Surely we've got enough brains in this country to come together and be able to work something out and take away the self-interest. Well, obviously, somebody who's played in the game, um, one of my colleagues says to me during one of the pods we've done that he feels that there's too many professional clubs in Scotland for the size of country that we've got. Do you, do you agree with that as somebody who's obviously, you've been down at Morton, you've been at Hearts and Rangers? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the clubs are struggling financially and they're not at the full-time level. And certainly, again, back in the day, there was enough clubs that managed to survive by having part-time football and their players been having part-time jobs or even full-time jobs. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. To make every team professional is not financially viable in my mind. Okay, so we'll just quickly move on to Rangers just now. Um, and what do you make of the job that Stephen Gerrard's done since he came into the club? Because obviously 2012, down the leagues, we're, we're nowhere, we're coming back up the leagues, there's no infrastructure, no nothing. Um, so what do you make of the job that, that Gerrard's done since he, he came into the club? I think Stephen's done a, a great job at Rangers. He's managed to galvanise a lot of the supporters to get behind the team. Um, my worry is, obviously, not winning the league, because I think every Rangers fan wants to win the league. And we're coming up a little bit short. Now, I don't know what, what goes on behind regarding the dressing room and, and players and all, and all that, but there's one or two aspects that I think players need to look at themselves regarding discipline and, um, you know, the big games, when it comes to the big games, they, they need to do a little bit better. And the worry is, over the past couple of years, is after this sort of winter break, we seem to have come back and been a completely different team, you know, and we need to really get our finger on that. That can't, that can't just happen. As an ex-player, can you explain that? Because if, if it only happened one season, then you can maybe put your finger on it and see maybe a couple of players didn't come back in the best of shape or the forum or whatever, or a mentality problem. But two years in a row, do you have to look at the manager for that or is that just solely down to the players? I think you, you can individualise it. I think you need to look at it as a, a group thing. You know, everybody has to take a look at themselves and say, why Why is this happening? It's happening a couple of years in a row. Um, so is it a, a case of Rangers finished off strongly towards you know, the start of the winter break and then players to maybe take their foot off the gas? Become a little bit complacent, maybe. I don't know. Um, I, would, I wouldn't like to think so. Um, but the facts are there. You know, they've come back and if not, did as well as what they should have done. I mean, Rangers have got a team more than capable of winning the league, you know, and they should be winning the league. But there's that sort of 5% that's just missing at the moment. And it's it's a it's a thin line between success and failure when you're at that level. Uh, and we are just the other side of it at the moment. I think you've seen from the League Cup final, um, they just hammered Celtic for 90 minutes and Celtic just got that goal. But it just shows you that the gap has closed. Well, that's, and that's a perfect example. You know, and cup, cup finals can go either way, but they proved on that day that they barred Celtic and should have won it. So when you, you take that in a sort of league format, then if they play like that every week, they'd have won the league. Mm -hmm. Won the league. It's an inconsistency is the problem. Right, so coming to um, global sports recruitment, for anybody uh, watching or listening who hasn't heard of it, could you maybe tell them what it is and what your role is in it? Okay, so I'm a director of uh, Global Sports Recruitment, along with my two colleagues, um, John Crawley and Simone Enrici. We started the business, the company, four years ago. We've all worked in this sort of industry for over 10 years. John um, went out on a scholarship to New York and then transferred on to Las Vegas, University of Las Vegas. Simone went to Tennessee and on a scholarship, a football scholarship. So basically we, we recruit student athletes um, for international scholarships to US colleges. So we usually try and get them as early as possible on board our company from 15 onwards, and then we tend to go over to the US when they're 18. So when we get them on board when they're 15, 16, it means we can sort of advise them on their academic side as well as working hard at their, their football or basketball or baseball, whatever sport they take part in. But the important aspect is their academics. If you get somebody that's 18, they've been out of school for two years, 
you're going to have limited options. If I can meet a 15-year-old boy and girl, and you're saying to them, look, the better grades you get, the better scholarship you're going to get before you go to America. So that feeds in well with mums and dads. When you think a lot of the players at academies, they're all going to get told they're going to be the next best thing mm-hmm. as a professional player. This is a sort of fallback route. This is an option for them that mums and dads will like the fact that they're sticking in at school and working hard at the education because there's going to be something else. If the facts speak for itself, probably 95% of players at academies, youth clubs, will get released when they're 18, 19. So this is a sort of fallback route for them. So where, whereabouts do you kind of recruit from? Is it, is it just Scotland or is it around the world? Scot- Scotland's actually our smallest market. Um, <laughs> we, we work all over the world. What I find is in Scotland, a lot of the players, younger players, tend to just want to stay at home now. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas back in my day, I, if I get an option to go abroad, I mean, Ajax tried to sign me when I was 16, but I'd already signed for Rangers. Mm-hmm. I would have went to Holland in a minute, a team like Ajax. So uh, Scotland's a small market for us. It's Ireland, um, England, a lot of business in Spain, Madrid, Andalusia, um, Dubai, Middle East, Korea, uh, Australia, New Zealand. So we're, we do a lot of travelling. Obviously not in the moment. <laughs> so where, where are you? Are you mainly based? Are you, are you still live in Scotland, or are you living abroad? No, I'm, I'm based in Edinburgh. Um, oh. But we, we do a lot of travelling, as I said. So it's usually two weeks. There's a lot of travelling, and then the next two weeks we're sort of doing a bit of paperwork and catching up on different things. So what, what gave you the idea to kind of start? Edgy then? Well, again, my two colleagues, John and Simone, uh, went over and obviously I spoke to Davy Weir about it. And I, I was thinking back to my early days about um, having that option. That option wasn't there for me when I was 16. Mm-hmm. If it was, I would certainly, uh, I would have looked at it. Um, and then subsequently, there's that many players, young boys and girls getting released from, most of girls now because girls football's really grown. There's a massive interest in America to get international girls over there. But going back to the boys, the, the majority of boys are getting released from academies and have nothing to fall back into. Is either going into part-time football, the part-time uh, work, which is fine if that's what they want to do. But the chance to go to America for four years and get a degree, you get a lot of it paid by the US college or university. You're meeting international students, you're mingling with international baseball players, basketball players, tennis players, boys and girls from all over the world. What an environment to get brought up in and to to earn a degree in and to play full-time sport. It's a no-brainer. So what's the kind of qualifications you need to maybe get started with yourselves? Is it just a case of you go around at different schools um, or do people need to apply? Uh, we, we do, well, at the moment, obviously, we're doing online assessments, so people can find um, the details on www.globalsportsrecruitment.com, and there's online um, assessment forms and online drills that you can do and send video footage in and send in an online CV. But when we are travelling, we're, we're sort of advertising through Facebook and Instagram uh, and different other me- mediums, and we'll have different clients, potential clients turn up at uh, different areas in London, Spain, uh, Madrid, Malaga, for instance, different schools will do assessments at. And we'll do it's different drills, whether it's basketball, football, or whatever, whatever sport it is that we're doing at that time. Are you looking for any personal assistance to come to you to travel to all these countries? <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I get asked that question quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what kind of, how, uh, wide a variety of sports is it? Is it just any sport really? Is it- well it's any sport that the American colleges will offer scholarships for. Um, it varies between, you know, we, we do a lot of football or soccer as they call it obviously mm-hmm. because that's where the majority of money they're spending. They want international stu- students for soccer, uh, be it boys or girls. Uh, basketball is a big one as well. Tennis is a bit more individuals. We won't do a lot of tennis, we won't do a lot of golf. Team sports, is the main one, like soccer, rugby, um, baseball, basketball, American football, field hockey, things like that. What, what are these facilities like in America, these colleges? Because I've seen, I've seen a few, obviously, I've seen it on the TV and stuff, you see a lot of <coughs> scholarships seem to be the main way to go for folk in America that don't have any money. And they go yeah. to these colleges and they look vast and amazing. So 
what exactly are the facilities like? Well, that they can outstrip a lot of the professional clubs in the UK and 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 all over the world. I mean, some of the top colleges in, in the US, you've got stadiums that have got a hundred thousand seats in them. You know, second to none. They might have five to ten thousand people on campus at the sort of bigger ones or the more then the sort of lower level junior college. It might be a thousand, two thousand. It just depends how academic the student is and what sort of scholarships they're handing out. But the facilities are second to none. If you go into a bar in America and you're sitting at a sports bar, it'll be college sport that's on. Mm-hmm. You know, very, very level you get the MLS or SPL or EFL <laughs> on. It's, it's, it's college sport. And you'll see them all sitting there with their college shirts on, supporting their, their college team. I know, it's, it's weird that because I've, I've, I've seen like the NFL on TV and stuff because obviously the NFL is their biggest sport. And you think it's the main teams, but it's not. It's the college teams. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what it's like, that's mental. Sport. It is mental. Yeah, it's a, it's massive money they pump into college sport. It's a, it's a billion dollar industry. Um, and that's why they've got all the money to, to spend on scholarship. So, so America's, are they really focused on putting a lot of money into their sports? Are they taking their sports really serious? And I mean, more, more so than international sports, like they call it soccer. I hate that word. But like yeah. foot, football and, and stuff like that. Well, if you think about the majority of athletes that turn pro uh, in America, they all go through this college system. So it's there for a reason. I mean, you're a, you're a full-time student, you're a full-time athlete. So everything's full-time. You know, you're working non-stop at getting your degree, keeping up your C-grade average, but also full-time sport. So it's a, it's a great environment to get brought up in. We find a lot of students that we send out there, they mature really quickly, but they absolutely love the experience. Okay, so just before I let you go, David, and thanks very much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Just a couple of wee quick fire questions, um, bog standard questions. Who was the best player you played alongside? Best player, I would have to say, is David Cooper. What was your favourite strip? <laughs> <laughs> See, I thought I'd get you with that one. <laughs> uh, but there's that many. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I would say, yeah, I would say the first Rangers strip I ever put on. Ah, oh, no, no, see, that's a cop out answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what was your favourite game you played in? For Rangers. Yeah. Well, for yeah. anybody, anybody. I'll go for Rangers because um, I think it was the there was so many big European ties, but I think the Leeds United match down at Leeds where we beat them two one because they had. They had some team, Cantona, Strachan, McAllister, mm. so many good players playing for Leeds at that time. And to get down there and beat them 2-1, when we had about, I think, five fans in the stand, <laughs> maybe more. <laughs> I don't know how they got tickets. I think that that season, that, that game just showed how strong that team was that season because it was they were, they were a, like you said, English champions. They were a phenomenal uh, team and we beat them home and away. Uh, absolutely. And that, that gave us the belief to go through that season that we've got something going on here. There's a belief that we can go on and win everything here and do really well. Um, and we get two results like that, sort of back-to-back against top-quality opposition. It builds everybody's confidence up and it gives the fans a belief as well. So uh, that's when you get a great start to the season like that, everybody's on a sort of roll. Right, well, uh, Dave, you've got my number if you need a personal assistant. Um, <laughs> thanks very much for coming and talking to us today. You're welcome. Thanks.